0: Make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hello, all our amazing Food Junkies listeners, Clarissa here, and have we got an episode for you. Today, Vera interviews Dr. Daniel Lieberman. But before I tell you why you absolutely need to listen to this episode, I have a special announcement. Molly and I are officially launching Sweet Sobriety, which is a one-of-a-kind online coaching community and connection platform for those seeking an improved relationship with self, food, and body. Our first order of business is to offer you a workshop that will set you up for success for one of the most challenging times of the year, the holidays. Bethany Mazaru is hosting Surviving the Holidays starting next Wednesday, November 16th. Molly and I will be helping co-host the lives and we can't wait for you to join us. Here, you will create your own personalized game plan for your holiday season with four weeks of support. During our time together, you will learn what makes the holiday so challenging, set your own intention, make a detailed plan that works for you, learn about self-care and integrate it into your plan, learn about and plan your boundaries for the holidays, leverage any food slips, and glean learnings from your own post-holiday debrief to propel you forward. What you get is a Sweet Sobriety holiday plan template, guidance to completing your plan via four video modules to watch at your own pace, and join us for four one-hour live support sessions. Register by going to sweetsobriety.ca or by checking out the show notes for the website link. Last week, we talked about oxytocin. This week, we are speaking about dopamine, the molecule of more. In this episode, Vera speaks to Dr. Lieberman about what is dopamine? What is its value in the human mind? What is reward prediction error and why do we need to be aware of it? What are some of the dangers of dopamine dysregulation? What is the role of dopamine in addiction? What is the difference between controlled dopamine and desired dopamine? What is the role of dopamine in willpower? And how is addiction logical to an addict? Thank you for listening and
1: enjoy the show. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman and I am your host today um, on the Food Junkies podcast. Today I'm speaking with notable author, Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman. Dr. Lieberman received his medical degree at New York University and is now professor of psychiatry and behavioral science at George Washington University. He is a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. He is co-author of the international best-selling book, The Molecule of More, how a single molecule in your brain drives love, sex, and creativity, and will determine the fate of the human brain. This amazing book has been translated into 20 languages. His most recent book is called Spellbound, Modern Science, Ancient Magic, and the Hidden Potential of the Unconscious Mind. It's not even out yet, but it's soon to be out, I think in today or tomorrow or something like that.
2: Yesterday, actually, it first came out. That's pretty well.
1: Anyway, uh, we at the Food Junkies podcast are really interested to explore the role of dopamine, the molecule of more in addiction and especially in food addiction. So hello, Dr. Lieberman.
2: Hello. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Yeah, thank you. Now, we always like to start with a sort of personal end of this, like whatever you're willing to share, how you got into the study from, I guess, from your just general psychiatry, how you got into the area of dopamine and the fact that you got really interested in and wrote about it. And then, of course, how you moved from there into the subconscious or the unconscious with a spellbound.
2: Right. So, you know, when I went to college, I studied the great books, the great books of Western civilization, starting from Homer and Socrates and Aristotle, all the way up to the present with Einstein and Newton and Lobachevsky. And what I came to realize is the human mind and what the human mind produces is the most interesting thing there is. And so I really wanted to make that my career, studying the human mind And I spoke with one of my mentors and he said, you know what, go to medical school because there is so much being done with biology these days that that's probably where you're going to have the most fun. And I always loved math and science. So that's how I became a psychiatrist. As I was studying psychiatry, dopamine kept popping up and it kept popping up in the strangest places. When we studied schizophrenia, we were told, oh, that's a problem with dopamine. Addiction, the same thing. Attention deficit disorder, the same thing. And I started wondering, how is it that all of these very, very different mental illnesses are caused by problems with the same neurochemical? And once I started digging, I said, wow, this is so interesting. I've got to share it with the world.
1: Wow, that's great. And so from there, I mean obviously we're going to talk about this in much greater depth, but how did you then move into the uh, the study of the unconscious and you know with your work
2: with spellbound. You know, many many years ago, back I think in 1986 or 7, I happened to pick up a book by Carl Jung and uh, it was Man and His Symbols, a little bit easier for the lay reader. And I was reading it and I realized that he was pulling together a whole multitude of things that I'd been interested in my entire life not only psychology but also philosophy and literature and fairy tales and folklore and mythology and he was using it to explain the human psyche in a way that i found incredibly compelling so this was back in the 80s and it's very very complicated stuff and i've always wanted to write about it but i never felt that i understood it well enough to explain it to other people Until a few years ago, I I really spent four years researching this book, trying to figure out how I could explain it, and I did it through the doorway of magic and the supernatural.
1: Wow. That's really interesting. I hope we get back to that because I think it's a really interesting move into when we talk about addiction recovery and and the the power of the unconscious and the story and the narrative and how that's used. So I hope we get to that. But let's get to the uh, first part, which is what we're super interested in. That's dopamine. Can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, you know, we know about dopamine, the molecule of want and desire, but give us your perspective, its importance in the human mind and, you know, ultimately in addiction.
2: Yeah, so most people, when they think about dopamine, they think about addiction, they think about pleasure, they think about reward, and that's certainly a very important part of it, but in fact, it, it's a lot more than that, and I think that the best way to understand dopamine from a big-picture perspective is to think about the familiar saying, either you have it or you don't. Have you heard that? No, I haven't, but go on. It's an old saying, you know, either you have it or you don't to our evolutionary ancestors, that could be either you have it or you're dead. Right. From an evolutionary perspective, from a survival perspective, there's a very big difference between resources that you have and resources that you want or need, but do not have. And as a result, the brain has separate mechanisms for dealing with these two different worlds. Yeah, one world is the world within arm's reach. And the technical term for that is peripersonal. And in that world are things that we have. And right now, it could be a pen or a laptop or a phone. These are things that are in your control. When you interact with things in the peripersonal space, it takes place in the present moment, right now, and it's here. What you do with those things is you use them, you enjoy them you may consume them uh, if it's something to eat or drink. Now, everything else in the entire universe is in the extra personal space. That's things outside your arm's reach. Those are things you don't have. If you want to interact with those things, it's not going to be now. It's going to be in the future. It could be a few seconds into the future if it's picking up an apple on a table across the room, but it's certainly not now. And our brain processes these two worlds using different circuits and different neurochemicals. The peripersonal space is processed using neurochemicals that I call the here and now neurochemicals. Yes.
1: Yes. That's when you said that, I remembered that in the book. Yes.
2: Yeah. And those chemicals process emotion because emotions are experienced in the present moment. They process relationships, uh, oxytocin, because we interact with people in the present moment. And they also process sensory experiences, feeling, hearing, tasting, and touching. Everything else in the universe that's out in the extrapersonal space is processed by dopamine. And that's why dopamine gives us desire and motivation. It's why it gives us excitement and enthusiasm and anticipation. It makes us go out to get things that we don't have now. And that's why we named the book The Molecule of More, because it's always about getting things that are not in the peripersonal space, things you want, you need more, more, and more.
1: Right. Okay. And just for people who are listening, so the here and now chemicals, it's not just oxytocin, but it's also serotonin, endorphins, endocannabinoids, I think you also brought in.
2: Yeah, that's right. And you know, when we think about dopamine, endorphin, and endocannabinoids, we think about pleasure, but it's worth pointing out that they're very, very different kinds of pleasure. Uh, A dopamine pleasure is an excitement, it's an enthusiasm, it's a feeling of anticipation. and We all love that. Endocannabinoid and endorphin, the here and now pleasure is quite different. It's a pleasure of contentment, of satisfaction and fulfillment. If dopamine pleasure is loud screaming at the top of your lungs, here and now pleasure is quiet and sedate and calm. And it can be very, very nice, but not everybody likes it as much as dopamine. It, to some people, it feels a little bit touchy-feely and a little bit uncomfortable. So it's important to note that when we talk about pleasure, there, there are different kinds, and they serve very different roles in our behavior.
1: Um, okay, So so good. I'm going to be bringing this back to food and then sort of uh, aberrations with food feeding, basically, that are caused. So the here and now would be the enjoyment of the food. You're eating it. You're really enjoying it. And then the dopamine, the peripersonal, would be the I'm looking forward to having a little bit more dessert after I've had my meal, that sort of thing, right?
2: Yes, that's right.
1: Okay. So that's in a perfect system that's working well. Okay. So then you talk about the reward prediction error. And my guess is is that that's where troubles begin, or can you just elaborate a little bit on that in this context?
2: Reward prediction error is related to the idea that dopamine always wants more. As we go through our day, our brain is constantly evaluating the environment for resources, resources that natural selection have uh, programmed it to pursue in order to maintain survival and reproduction. If there are more resources in our environment than we predicted there would be, that's a kind of an error. It's a reward prediction error. So, for example, if you are expecting a $1,000 paycheck and your boss says, hey, good news, you got a $500 bonus, you didn't expect that your reward prediction system made a mistake, that's a reward prediction error, and that leads to dopamine, and that feels great. Now, let's say that it wasn't a bonus. Let's say that it was a surprise raise. And now every time I get a paycheck, there's going to be an extra $500 in it. Well, that sounds terrific, but I'm not going to get any more dopamine. Because once I expect it, there's no more reward prediction error, and so there's no more dopamine.
1: So that's that context of more, right?
2: Yeah. The expectation, but also the more. Yeah, and that's a frustrating thing about dopamine. Dopamine only responds to things that are new, to things that are unexpected, to things that give us more than we had thought we were going to get. And so in order to get that constant dopamine buzz, you're constantly having to raise the stakes. Which sounds pretty exhausting. It's very exhausting and it's very bad for your mental health as well.
1: Yeah. Uh, Okay. So actually, so we can talk about that, but you know what, one of the things, maybe you can bring this up. When we achieve a goal, you finally get the, maybe not the Olympics, but you finally get something, then it's no longer exciting later. And I imagine that's a bit of the reward
2: prediction error there too, right? Yeah, that's right. I, I gave an example of Buzz Aldrin, second man to ever walk on the moon. And a reporter asked him, what does it feel like to be the second man to ever walk on the moon? You must, be, you must be in seventh heaven. You must be so proud of himself. And he said, look, that's just something that we did. Now we have to do something else. This guy has so much dopamine that he can only think about the future. He can't bask in the glory of something that he worked incredibly hard to achieve. And, you know, I don't want to say dopamine is bad because it allows us to achieve incredible things by giving us desire and energy and motivation. But if we're not careful, it can really rob us of all the joy and pleasure that we would expect to derive from all the hard work we put into these projects.
1: You know, one of the things I think about or I thought about when I was reading the book was, I wonder if this is the explanation. So before we get into addiction and illness and depression, because I think that's where we're going here, is just the simple fact about growing up so that there's the wonderment of being a child. And then there's the aging process where there's no more wonder because we've been there and done it all. And is that partly the uh, explanation for why it's not Aging can be difficult because we don't have that ability to have dopamine anymore. Because really, what are we looking forward to? What more can we get?
2: Yeah, aging can be difficult, but it doesn't have to be unhappy. Uh, You know, our society really idolizes youth. And we really try to deny that there's anything good about getting older. And that's absolutely not true. Getting older is a wonderful thing. And if you look at studies of happiness... People in their 50s, 60s, and 70s are happier than people in their teens and 20s. You know, we we look back on that with nostalgia and and all the excitement and all all the new things we experienced and uh, the new relationships and the new jobs, but it wasn't like that in the present moment. It was actually incredibly stressful, and we didn't know what was happening, and our emotions were kind of running off the hook. Being young is more dopamine stimulating because everything is new. But as we get older, if we pay attention to successful aging, we get better at enjoying those here and now pleasures, which ultimately are much more durable than dopamine.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, what is it that's so intoxicating about dopamine? Like, so some people do seem to like the Buzz Aldrin's of the world, the Olympic people. Is it a genetic thing? Like, what is it? And given the fact that It would be better to be in sync, you know, to want something and then to be able to enjoy it later with the here and now chemicals. But that doesn't happen for a lot of people. So what's going on?
2: A good part of it is genetic. Yes, you can look at different genes that regulate dopamine neurotransmission and you can find patterns in artists and other creative people immigrants tend to have more active dopaminergic systems you know these are the people who looked around them and said okay my situation here is not good and instead of just putting up with it i'm going to do something about it and so they pull up all their roots they, they leave all of their social supports to travel to another country that takes dopamine now so there are some people who have very very high levels of dopamine And these are often people who change the world. These are Nobel Prize winners, entrepreneurs like um, Steve Jobs and other people like that. They're artists who who create awe-inspiring works of art. And we admire these people. Many times they tend to be very wealthy and they receive high honors. And so we might envy these people, but that's a mistake because they're all like Buzz Aldrin where they are never satisfied and they're usually pretty unhappy no matter how much they achieve all they care about is what's next
1: yeah i'm just thinking i I read this the uh, memoir of steve jobs and also also mother Teresa, and both of them were just miserable in their private life
2: yeah these people are wonderful for the species they do so much for everyone else and not so good for themselves personally though
1: Okay, so I don't know if this is related, but you mentioned that it's valuable to experience hardship in relation to dopamine. So how does that self-correct or how does that, why is that valuable?
2: I think experiencing hardship is valuable in a very broad way, not just for dopamine. So let me just start with that. Life is about change. People who try to stay the same as they go through life are not going to be happy and they're not going to be fulfilled. And again, it's easy to fall into that trap because our society values youth so highly. I remember some years ago, I saw some social media photos of some people I had gone to high school with. And, you know, they all had drinks in their hand and they were all kind of shouting, woo, woo, just like we used to in high school. And apparently those were wonderful years for them and they never wanted to leave them but it wasn't so cool when 50 year olds were doing that. And you know, we see people who try to hang on to the past in different ways, and it doesn't work out well. Life is about change, but change is hard. And we don't like to change because we get comfortable in certain situations and we don't wanna go through the hardship of trying something new. But when hardship is visited upon you and things are bad, you have to change in that situation. And there are some wonderful studies that show that people who undergo hardship and navigate it successfully, not everybody can navigate hardship successfully, and and that's not good. But if you're able to navigate hardship successfully, it increases qualities that have been called transcendent. And these qualities are associated with meaning and happiness in life.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess it's associated also with those here and now chemicals that you
2: mentioned earlier. It is. It is. But it's also associated with dopamine as well. You know, the transcendent qualities that are talked about are seeing meaning in life, which is dopaminergic. But it's also being satisfied with what you have. It's being comfortable with who you are and not dependent upon the opinions of other people. That's more here and now. It also is associated with a focus on others rather than a focus on oneself. And that's also a here and now kind of thing.
1: Okay. Now I wanted to bring in uh, uh, Dr. Anna Lemke who wrote Dopamine Nation. She talked about leaning into pain to get pleasure when it comes to dopamine. Did you have any thoughts about that? Does that fit some of what you're saying here?
2: Yes. You know, because dopamine is the molecule of more, Your brain doesn't want you to enjoy too much dopamine because in some ways that will devalue it. It always wants you chasing and reaching for the next thing. So we can go back to reward prediction error. If I find a new bakery on my way to work and they've got the most unbelievable croissants I've ever had in my life, that's going to give me so much dopamine But if I keep going every morning because I like the croissant so much, dopamine is going to shut down because it's no longer a reward prediction error. If I'm a drug user and I'm flooding my dopamine circuits, what's going to happen is they're going to adjust so that they become much less sensitive. And so I think what Dr. Lemke is talking about is that if you expose yourself to hardship in which you have minimal dopamine stimulation, you will resensitize the system. You will reset your expectations so that walking outside and smelling the fresh morning air will give you pleasure, whereas in the past, it used to take buying a new cell phone or a big screen TV. So I think it's really about resensitizing the system that's built to desensitize very, very quickly and easily.
1: Okay, good. That's great. So, one is it's an overexposure, and then you downregulate, and then you have to underexpose to upregulate again. So, it's a, like you said, a self correction. So, let's talk about some of the problems now that can happen. So, how does dopamine relate to mental illness?
2: Well, you know, there's all kinds of different mental illnesses that are caused by problems with dopamine. And one of the things that we emphasized in the book is that it's useful to divide the dopamine system into two separate pathways. One is a very ancient pathway that's deep within your brain. Uh, The technical term is the mesolimbic pathway, but we call it the desire pathway. This is the pathway that gives you desire, it gives you motivation, it gives you energy. It's also the desire that makes you feel good when you have a reward prediction error, And it's the pathway that drugs of abuse target to get you high. Now, there's another pathway that's evolutionarily very new, uh, and it's stronger in humans than in any other animal. And that one runs to the frontal lobes in the front of the brain. Technical term is the mesocortical pathway. We call it the dopamine control pathway. The ancient one, the desire pathway, it looks into the future, but not very far. It's very impulsive. It's like, gee, I would love to have that donut, and I'd like to have it right now. It's impulsive. The control pathway, on the other hand, looks much farther into the future, and it's able to use, it maximizes future resources, not through desire and motivation, but through planning and using reason and logic. So I might say, I want to go to France. Well, I can't just jump on a plane. I've got to save up for it. I've got to research the various hotels and airlines and attractions and things I want to do. So the motivation to do all that is going to come from the desire pathway, but the planning comes from the control pathway.
1: So I've I've always seen that the dopamine was in the mesolimbic area and that the willpower was there to moderate and mitigate the, the desire pathway.
2: But it actually, dopamine has a role there as well. That's the control. Yeah, it does. And, you know, if that pathway is not functioning well, we get a mental illness called attention deficit disorder. And the way we treat that is with stimulants like amphetamine that increase the activity of dopamine. So people who have difficulty focusing, concentrating, planning, controlling impulses, we give them more dopamine because we're targeting this control pathway.
1: Are you taking running the risk that you might be also, I mean, can you selectively target in such a way that you get only the control but not the desire? In other words, can't you potentially increase addiction?
2: Yeah, that is a great question. You know, we treat this with dopaminergic agents like amphetamine, and amphetamines are drugs of abuse. Now, people with ADHD are at increased risk of developing addictions because not having this control over their behavior, they act in more impulsive ways. And So years ago, parents were very worried. They said, look, I have a child with ADHD and this child is at an increased risk of developing an addiction. The last thing I want to do is give him an addictive drug, like amphetamine.
1: Which can override the desire,
2: Yeah, Yeah, Yes, that's a very, very good point. Let's study it. Because psychiatry is an empirical science. We can reason all we want, but we're not always right. We really need to test. And interestingly, they found that with this illness, the earlier you started the drug, and the higher the dose was, The less risk of addiction that patients had was a little bit unexpected. So we realized is that amphetamine preferentially stimulates the control pathway over the desire pathway. And that makes sense. The kind of amphetamine we use, dextroamphetamine, is actually not abused very often. If it is abused, it's abused by college students trying to get better grades, not to get high. If somebody wants to get high they use methamphetamine not dextroamphetamine and that will have a different effect on the two pathways.
1: Yeah, actually because I I am an addictions physician and one of the things that I see is but people who are doing um, like crystal meth are they're flooding their desire and dopamine but they're also flooding their control because they're so fixated like they're the ones that pull the clock apart and want to put it back together again like it's that same it's almost like a tug of war between the two of them.
2: Oh wow! Yeah, they're they're hitting both too hard
1: in that particular drug, and then we get all sorts of uh, like schizophrenic like behavior, which is again, it's an excess of dopamine. I believe in the frontal lobe, is it not? Like schizophrenia, problem.
2: no. Um, schizophrenia is actually an excess of dopamine in the desire pathway. Oh wow! How? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of interesting. Why? If I can take a minute to explain it, it really hinges on this word called salience. Salience refers to how important something is to you. So to our our evolutionary ancestors, if they're walking around and they're seeing a bunch of bushes, those bushes aren't very salient. But if suddenly they realize one of them has berries on it, that bush becomes very salient and boom, they get a dopamine that makes them focus on that bush and want it. And so in some ways, the things that trigger dopamine in ordinary life getting a raise, getting a new cell phone, meeting somebody that you're romantically interested in. This is about salience. It's about making your life better. One of the things that happens in schizophrenia is that people make mistakes of salience. Things that have nothing to do with them feel like they have to do with them. So maybe be watching TV and the newscaster is looking in the camera and talking the salience circuit goes off and the schizophrenic person feels like that person is talking to me. They read about a CIA operation and they feel like the CIA is investigating me. And that's what paranoia is. Paranoia is inappropriate salience and that's too much dopamine in the desire circuit.
1: Well, that's so interesting. So we've got attention deficit where there's not enough in the control, there's not enough dopamine in the control dopamine schizophrenia where there's too much dopamine in the desire, but it's the salience factor. So that's interesting. Those are two different, entirely different conditions. So where does addiction fit into this pattern?
2: Yes. And so then addiction fits in with people who, you know, every drug that stimulates dopamine in the desire pathway is addictive and every addictive drug stimulates dopamine in the desire pathway. So dopamine is both necessary and sufficient. And, you know, some people just have these desire pathways that are unfortunately very sensitive to chemical stimulation. I had a patient, you might have heard something similar from your patients. I had a patient who was alcohol dependent, and he told me the first time he drank alcohol, It was as if the sky opened up and the heavenly choir began to sing. And he might have enjoyed that, but it subsequently destroyed his life. And so people who fall into these traps, they get a lot more pleasure out of these dangerous drugs, and that kind of leads them to to focus in on it. And, And the other thing is that this system was evolved through natural selection to keep us alive, and that's the single most important thing to do. When you stimulate it artificially with chemicals, it really scrambles the system and it tricks the brain into thinking, oh, these chemicals are the single most important thing to my survival. And that's why you will see addicts who've given up their jobs, their families, their homes, their health to pursue their drug. And from the outside, it seems completely irrational. We say, why on earth would people do something like this? But from the inside, It makes perfect sense.
1: It sounds to me an awful lot like your description of schizophrenia where there's an issue with salience because the person has now designated that I need this drug to be alive when in fact another person says no you don't, it's worse. It's not schizophrenia but it's a kind of schizophrenic logic, isn't it?
2: I think that's a great way of thinking about it. That's right. The drug becomes the single most salient thing and to them it's logical to to sacrifice everything else.
1: Right. And like the schizophrenic, because I've often went, used schizophrenia as an example, you know, dopamine um, can be a real problem for people. The schizophrenia is not happy. They're not feeling like thrilled because they're having this excess of dopamine in the desire circuitry, as is the addict. They're actually also not thrilled. They're usually, by the time damage has happened, enough damage, they're actually like very unhappy and wishing they could get off that rat wheel, you know, because it's, it's no longer pleasant.
2: Yes, that's right. I've heard many cocaine addicts tell me that they no longer get any pleasure from the drug at all, but they continue to crave it. And craving is so unpleasant that the only reason they're using it is because they're giving into cravings, but the pleasure has gone.
1: So we've talked about a couple of mental... You know, what about bipolar disorder? How does that fit into that? Because bipolar and addiction are very close. They're often... People, yeah.
2: Yeah, that's right. Bipolar disorder, I I think, is a little bit more complicated neurochemically, but it certainly does involve excess dopamine production. You know, the DSM, which is sort of the Bible of making diagnoses, recently changed the criteria for bipolar disorder, and they added an activity criteria to mania, saying that when patients are manic, when they have elevated mood, they engage in high levels of activity. And it's not a purposeless activity like we might see in agitation. It's a goal-directed activity. So I had a patient who was hanging pictures at three o'clock in the morning while the rest of his family was trying to sleep. And a lot of times they're not pursuing goals in appropriate ways, but they are pursuing goals. So their dopamine system has gone into overdrive and it's like whipping them and it won't allow them to rest. They have to constantly keep moving. And again, Sometimes we think of mania as being something pleasurable, but usually it's not. Usually, patients are very relieved when it's treated and it comes to an end.
1: Okay, so you mentioned that dopamine, from the addiction point of view, um, it's a logical process because you're trying to fulfill, I guess, dopamine's essential purpose, which is to motivate you to do things that keep you alive. So it's completely logical. Let's use the language again of a uh, desire circuitry and control circuitry. What's happening on that level? with
2: addiction. Right. So ideally we want these two circuits to work together. Oftentimes though, they work in opposition. So, you know, if I want to have a cheese Danish for breakfast, my control system might say, no, why don't you have a piece of whole grain bread instead? And I think that with addiction, what has happened is that the desire circuit has completely swamped the control circuit. And people have really lost their ability to activate this circuit to say, hey, we need to make some sacrifices of short-term gain in order to get longer-term gain.
1: So I'm just thinking about your willpower experiment and what we can learn from that in this context.
2: Right. So the, the famous radishes and chocolate study. Yeah. They had a bowl of radishes and a bowl of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies surrounded by some chocolates. And these researchers who did it were quite sadistic. They actually baked the chocolate chip cookies in the same room where the research volunteer was going to be doing it. So the air is filled with the wonderful smell of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. They brought them in one at a time. Some of them they said, and they kind of tricked them, they said that this is a taste test thing. They said, we'd like you to sample the chocolate chip cookies, but don't touch the radishes. Others said, we'd like you to sample the radishes, but don't touch the chocolate chip cookies. And then after they did that, they said, okay, now we're going to do a different experiment. And they gave them a problem that looked like it was solvable, but in reality, it was not. And then they timed how long they worked at it. And what they found was that the people who had been assigned to the cookies worked on it longer than the people who were assigned to the radishes. And what they concluded was that willpower is a finite resource. It's like a muscle that gets tired. And so the people who had to use it to avoid the cookies, they ran out of it working on the problem. And, you know, we see the same thing with dieting. If somebody has to say no to a cupcake at work, they're much more likely to slip when they get home at night,
1: exactly, and give in to their cravings at night,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. So but if I could say, The control circuit gives us willpower, but that's not its strongest contribution. As I mentioned, it also gives us planning. And one of the things I say to my patients who are struggling with addictions is, it's better to be smart than to be strong. The control circuit can't overpower the desire circuit, but it can outsmart it. So for example, if I have a problem with alcohol and I must go to a work party where alcohol is being served, I got a couple of options. One, I can go and I say, I'm gonna be strong. I'm going to just say no. That's a stupid strategy and that's probably not going to work. Two, I could be clever and I could say, I'm gonna bring a sober buddy who's gonna stand by my time the entire time I'm at the party and that buddy will keep me sober. Or I'm going to take an an abuse before I go in. So I know that if I'll slip, I'll start throwing up uncontrollably and I won't need willpower. So we should not depend on willpower. We should depend on cleverness.
1: Right. Okay. We don't have to rely on the willpower for whatever length of time. Well, what about things like CBT, cognitive therapy and mindfulness? How does that fit into this in terms of treatment? So if you recognize that addiction is over the desire circuitry that has overpowered the control circuitry, of which there's only a limited amount, how can we strengthen one or the other, Well, I guess weaken one and strengthen the other? Like does cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness work? Or help in this
2: class? So, you know, the three modalities that I use most often are cognitive behavioral therapy, 12-step, and motivational enhancement therapy. And I can talk about mindfulness a little bit, but I know less about that than the other three. Let's start with CBT. CBT is all about being clever, not strong. It's all about learning strategies that will help you avoid your substance without having to use willpower. So it's recognizing cravings early so you get yourself out of a dangerous situation. It's about learning new ways of approaching problems. It's about learning about craving and eliminating triggers that will set off craving. I sometimes send my patients on what I call search and destroy missions. They have to go through their home with a friend and eliminate everything that reminds them of whatever it is that they're addicted to.
1: And if we're talking about sugar addiction, that would mean getting rid of the baking tins and getting rid of the sugar bags and the chocolate chip cookies and the peanut butter and all the rest of that stuff.
2: Exactly. You know, it might even involve getting rid of all their glassware if they drink sodas and buying brand new glasses that don't remind them of pouring soda into it. It's just amazing what will set off triggers. And that's why I ask my patients to bring a friend who can think about things differently. So being clever is very helpful and that's what CBT focuses on. Mindfulness strengthens the ego. Even though we try to avoid using willpower, we're still gonna have to use it. There there are gonna be times when we can't avoid it at all. And mindfulness strengthens it. It makes that part of our brain more robust and meditation does that as well. And so I think that those are good things. I don't, I don't think that, they're, that they should be used alone, but I think that they're good as adjuncts. And, and there's a special bonus that they make every single aspect of your life better as well. So definitely worth including.
1: So you said three. So the, the first one was the, the CBT outsmarting. And what
2: were the other two? So another one is the 12-step program. 12-step relies on the power of relationships. You know, it's called a fellowship. And very, very large portions of the brain are dedicated to processing social interactions, relationships. In fact, there's a theory called the social brain theory that hypothesizes the reason why human brains are so large is because they're adapted to social interactions. You know, dopamine is very much about the survival of the individual, but no matter how big or fast or strong an individual is, he's not going to hunt or fight or develop resources as well as a smoothly functioning team. And so evolution has really emphasized our ability to work together with other people. And that's one reason why social media dominates the internet even more than pornography because that's what the brain is wired for primarily is these interactions. So 12-step facilitation takes advantage of that. It helps you set up supports that you can call on when you're in trouble. And it also makes it so that we have the feeling of guilt that if we relapse, we're going to let down people that we care about a great deal. And that can be a good punishment that will help keep us in line.
1: Yeah. That's interesting that you highlighted that addiction is a very solo, uh, it's a very individual, well, you didn't say addiction, but dopamine, but addiction is excess desire dopamine. So it, it ends up being, it's a very solo, individual, I'm all alone
2: phenomena. Yeah. It really isolates a person and cuts them off from humanity. Yeah. And what was the third thing? The third one is motivational enhancement therapy yeah and basically what that's about is the idea that human beings, the nature of being human is to have conflict within our brains. Human beings want all kinds of different things. Some of them are mutually exclusive. So I might want both a new car and a large bank account and an easy schedule at work. but but all of those things are mutually exclusive. And so people who are addicted to drugs, one of their primary desires is for more drug but it's not their only desire they're deep in there especially if you can get them early on in their illness there's probably also a desire to be a good spouse a good parent a good worker and what motivational enhancement therapy does is it uses techniques to amplify those positive desires so that hopefully over time they will outweigh the harmful desires Okay,
1: so if we want to translate this to treatment for a food addiction or sugar addiction, it would be recognizing, you know, in the language of the addiction world, the people places things, the cues, outsmarting by recognizing the dangers and not relying on the uh, control circuitry, which isn't that strong, and then getting, uh, really beefing up the social piece. In other words, diminishing the individual drive, you know, the dopamine drive, or buffeting it with the social, I don't want to call it shame, but embarrassingly like, you back to nature but bringing you back to humankind as it were as you you know are on the extremes and then finally geez what was
2: what was the third one again the, the motivational enhancement therapy might involve uh, imagine what it would be like to be free of this food addiction um describe it to me journal about it talk about it let's let's think of all the wonderful things and try to make them real as possible in our imagination
1: and isn't that another way of saying bringing to the forefront more the here and now chemicals because if you know on the dopamine bus you're just it's all you're not even experiencing the moment anymore is to bring back the moment as it were
2: i think that's most important in the mindfulness and in the uh, relationship but motivational enhancement therapy is dopamine you're just trying to get competing dopamine so right? I've got the desire to be helpful. I'm sorry, to be healthy. That's dopamine. You know, I want to have a better future. I want more health, but it's good dopamine, not bad dopamine.
1: Mm -hmm. And before we get to the spellbound piece, I I just want to go back to, I was really struck by some of the scenarios in the book about if we don't halt this desire for more, which really we're living in a society that just propels that we're going to be in real trouble. Like, you know, I was really struck by your um, writing about like, artificial intelligence, like even though we know it's a dangerous potential, the desire to like the Buzz Aldrin's in us, it's like well, we still want to know <laughs> to the point even of a uh, potential human ex- extinction, climate change.
2: I just would agree with you. It's amazing. You know, we pursue things we know have the potential to destroy us, but we have no choice. We have to do it. You have to do it. We have to do a part of his competition because if we don't do it, somebody else will and maybe they'll use it in a worse way than we will. So let's get there first and maybe we can overpower them and destroy them before they destroy us. It's kind of terrible.
1: It's kind of terrible, but it's logic of the logic of the addict thinking. So anyway, it seemed to me that Spellbound was almost like an entirely different world. Like you had walked into a different, well, fairy tale, you know, a different place, uh, another part of the brain, the sort of archaic, you know, I guess Jungian archetypal type of thing. And it seemed to me that this treatment potential was there. But anyway, can you talk a little bit about Spellbound and your explorations into the unconscious?
2: Yes. So Spellbound is all about the unconscious mind. And it explores it from a neuroscientific and psychological basis based on uh, experimentation. But the unconscious mind is so complicated that doesn't take us far enough to really be able to understand it. And so in later chapters, it goes beyond that. And it draws off the work of Carl Jung, who had the insight that the things the unconscious do often feel like that there is some supernatural power imposing its will upon us and so if you look back at these stories about magic and the supernatural fairy tales myths folklores all kinds of different works of art that's going to give us a road map of the unconscious that is much more detailed and actually much more sophisticated than what our science is currently capable of. So what I tried to do is I I tried to merge the two in a way that would really give us the most complete understanding of this part of our brain.
1: Is there anything that you can say? I don't remember seeing this, but I I haven't finished the book about addiction, something that we can learn about addiction from this unconscious mind that's beyond the language of dopamine, or maybe maybe fills in some of the blanks.
2: Yeah, I think it relates to what we've been talking about. But, you know, most people really underestimate the role of the unconscious mind in their life. Most people really think that they control over what goes on in their brain. They're making decisions and they're calling the shots. People who are living with addictions actually have much greater insight into the fact that that's simply not true. Because they're aware that on a daily basis... They are doing things that a part of them doesn't want to do. Nobody wants to destroy their life. Nobody wants to hurt the people who love them. But addicts do it, and they do it because there are agents inside their brain that are forcing them to do it against their better judgment. And so one of the things that we have to learn is that we cannot control our unconscious mind and our unconscious mind is very, very powerful. And I think that speaks again to the futility of trying to overcome addictions and other negative behaviors that might arise from the unconscious. And the unconscious is both very, very good and very, very bad. We're focusing on the bad right now, but I don't want to give them the impression that it's all bad, but it can be very bad. We can't, it's stronger than the conscious mind. And so we can't beat it with willpower alone what you need to do is you need to tame your unconscious. You need to make it an ally. You need to make friends with it. And that's one of the things that CBT does. It's like, let's not go, let's not go against it. Let's figure out ways that we can work around this and gradually bring it under control.
1: Can we use the language that we often use in the food addiction world in what you're saying? So people will say things like, I've got like one archetype almost. A lot of people will say, yes, this fits. It's like there's a red dog. There's a dog inside that takes over. It eats everything in sight, even though you're saying, I don't want to eat and that's not my diet, et cetera, et cetera. It will just take over. And many, many people will describe this thing as it's almost like a person that's not you, somebody else in your brain. I mean, some people say it's like the devil, but anyway, it's something else. And that's that's a very common, I mean, it seems almost archetypal with addiction and probably rage and other emotions. So how can we, recognizing that there is this second party, this person living inside, how can we use some of the tools that you're talking about?
2: Yeah, yeah. I just want to start by saying that's a great way of thinking about it. The human brain processes information best when it uses these kinds of Personifications. Um, and as I mentioned in the book, we do it all the time. You know, meteorologists talk about a raging storm, doctors talk about a stubborn infection. And that that's what these myths and fairy tales do. They personify these unconscious forces in the brain. And, and the red dog is a wonderful way of doing it because it allows us to work with those circuits more effectively than if we just talk about brain chemicals and ion fluxes, for example.
1: Is the concept of higher power yet another one of those?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think so. So how do we tame that red dog? Well, the first thing is that we respect it. The red dog is stronger than we are, and so we do not take it head on. I think in some ways it's like training a horse. The horse is stronger than you, but you can train it. One thing is you need to be gentle. And, you know, the red dog is the enemy. It sounds kind of funny to talk about being gentle with it, but really you should. You should understand that this entity has its own goals and it's in there for a reason. It's in there to keep you alive. You know, for your evolutionary ancestors, this red dog Made them risk their lives to get food. It kept them alive. It was their friend. So don't hate it. Just realize that it doesn't fit in well in the modern world where this terrible processed food is available at every corner convenience store. And so it just needs to be brought into the modern world with gentleness and consistency. And, you know, when you train a horse, it's going to learn slowly, it's going to make mistakes. When you're working with the red dog, you're going to have slips, you're going to have relapses. That's okay. Don't beat yourself up. Don't beat up the red dog. Kindness, gentleness, consistency, and patience. It's a long-term project. Little by little, get these sugar-processed foods out of your diet, and over time, the red dog will not only stop tormenting you, it will actually transform into something very, very powerful
1: yeah actually so i was wondering because you said that the unconscious doesn't have to be bad we're only looking at the bad so what's a powerful archetype that we can use that actually we can potentially transform that red dog into
2: yeah what's the hope so you know that red dog is making you act in compulsive ways okay it's 10 o'clock at night and you're exhausted and you want to get into bed but the red dog says no you're going to the store and buying a bag of potato chips or something Well, if that red dog becomes an ally, then maybe that energy can be put in the service of what we call the ego, who you really are. It's 10 o'clock at night, and there's a really important report you need to do for work tomorrow. Because you've tamed that red dog, you can do it. You've got the energy and the motivation. You can say, you know what, I'd like to get into bed, but I can do this. I've got this motivation force inside of me that now I can use you can
1: ride that horse that you've tamed to a destination that you want to get to okay now one of the things that as you were in this is just the last question I want to ask about this is it made me think about that right brain left brain split but does that fit into that into this as well this the idea that the left is the sort of conscious thinking and the right is that sort of story narrative archetypal imaginary part of the brain
2: yeah you know i think that that's not a bad approximation Left brain, right brain has fallen out of favor a little bit because there are so many studies that contradict it and find the opposite, but it's not a bad approximation. The left brain tends to be more logical, more rational. The right brain tends to be more holistic, impressionistic. Interesting way of looking at it, but I think there are better models. I prefer different models, yeah.
1: Okay. Like, like you're spelled on. Okay, great. So just in closing, uh, just uh, thank you so much for answering these questions. What is, I mean, it's kind of odd to ask you what's next because literally what's next is your book that came out yesterday, but what are you foreseeing um, uh, happening in the next year or two with your book or with whatever else you're doing?
2: So, you know, as I mentioned, I think that people really underestimate the importance and the role of their unconscious mind And it leads to all kinds of terrible, terrible things, partially addiction, but all kinds of other things as well. Losing control of the animal side of one's mind, one's emotions, one's passions. And so I just love doing podcasts like this, where I can talk about it, I can help educate people. And so that's a really big thing that I want to do in the next year. I'm also working on a follow-up to The Molecule of More. That was very theoretical. And my publisher says, all right, now we want something very practical.
1: Well, please talk about food addiction in that. that.
2: (laughs) I will. I will definitely put that on my list and that will be a chapter.
1: Yeah, for sure. Because it's really, it's it's undermined, it's dismissed. But boy, is it ever a big deal for a lot of people. Uh, Okay, one more question. If you could tell a younger version of yourself, this is our signature question, uh, something about dopamine or a manifestation of dopamine in your life, what would it be?
2: If I could tell a younger version of myself anything, I wouldn't. Because, you know, we spoke earlier about the link between hardship and growth. These days in 2022, everybody's interested in shortcuts, right? Here's one brilliant hack that will allow you to whatever, get rich, be in perfect health, lose 20 pounds. And that's not what life is about. If something is easy, if something is a shortcut, you can be darn sure there's a price to pay. And so my younger self had to figure it out. And it was very, very painful. And I made a lot of mistakes. And I would not give that up for anything.
1: Okay. Well, that's a great way to end. Thank you so much again for your time and for your uh, insight into the molecule of more
2: dopamine. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.